Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's the end of the year. We're sort of wrapping up in the the winter season here. This is going to be the end of the first year of Invention as a podcast. And we're coming at you with some year-end wrap-up listener mail. I think we're probably going to do two episodes worth of listener mail because we actually have, – we, we haven't heard from you since August or so. It's been a while on oh, us. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we figured this would be a great way to close out the year uh, to share some messages from fans of the show like you. All right, so we're going to summon uh, – uh, what's our mailbot in the show name? Oh, we've forgotten the name. It's yeah, Malos. Oh, yes, Malos. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, modeled after Talos, the bronze automaton. Mm-hmm. And this is the mailbot, Malos. Say hello, Malos. Okay, now I remember it. Now I remember it. My bad. All right, so we have some listener mail. Let's dive right into it. These are, again, going to refer to various episodes of the show, some recent, some not so recent, but it's all good stuff. Yeah, it's going a ways back, uh, and this one comes from the series we did in October about coffins and caskets, all all the different kinds of inventions in that world, uh, like to prevent your body from being removed from a coffin or casket when you wanted to stay in there, to help get your body out of a coffin or casket when you wanted to get out. Uh, So this one comes from our listener, Catherine. Catherine says, hey, guys, first, I want to tell you how much I'm enjoying your podcast. I am a former librarian turned stay at home mom with two kiddos, a two year old and a six month old. I really enjoy listening while doing stuff around the house. And I have a story for you that's too funny not to share. I was listening to your first episode on caskets earlier this week. Since y'all are family friendly, I was letting it play where my two year old EJ could hear. I didn't really think she was paying attention, but boy, was I wrong. In the episode, you talked about Victorian safety caskets and Edgar Allan Poe. Well, I happen to have an Edgar Allan Poe finger puppet on my desk in our office. The day after listening to Caskets Part 1, I found Poe's jacket lying in the middle of the office floor. So I called EJ into the room and asked her where Edgar Allan Poe was. She knows who he is because I've let her play with the puppet a few times. She immediately said, oh, and runs over to my husband's desk and retrieves his glasses case. He's dead. (laughs) She then proceeds to open the glasses case, revealing interred and jacketless Edgar Allan Poe. Then she says, but not really. (laughs) Yes, my two-year-old had buried Edgar Allan Poe in my husband's glasses case alive. Needless to say, my mind was blown. I didn't know whether to laugh or not. I had no idea she was paying such close attention to the episode. Anyway, I thought you all would enjoy knowing that you have a very young and attentive listener. Keep up the good work, Catherine. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, uh, being, putting horrors in a child's head that early is no, a real privilege. Uh, well, no. Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, but I, I, I do find it amusing because, yeah, young kids, uh, they are very interested in in concepts of, of death and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and so forth, even if they, they certainly don't have the ability to fully understand these lofty concepts, I mean, the understanding of which eludes uh, adults a lot of the time. But, um, but, but yeah, I, I don't know how many times I've, uh, you know, my, my, my son has been playing with uh, stuffed animals and there's one that is dead or has died, uh-huh. you know, or must, or, you know, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a, a wonderful story. And, and, and also it's neat that they applied the, you know, the concepts of uh, live burial to the scenario. Yeah. I'm just glad that uh, they weren't listening into the guillotine episode. And it could have <laughs> right. really gone uh, sideways on you. Are we family friendly? I guess we are. We're not overtly or intentionally not family friendly, but we cover some mature stuff. We don't we don't cuss. That's true. Per se, you know. 
All right, here's another one. Uh, this comes to us from Josh, and it concerns caskets as well. Hey, guys, I'm writing this after listening to the second part of the casket and thought you might find this interesting or at least entertaining. My wife and I are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we believe in a literal and physical resurrection. I found your discussion of the idea that your body needs to stay intact for resurrection very interesting, mostly because I am an organ donor. I figure that organs taken from my body will somehow be returned when the time comes. I also figure if people who choose cremation can get resurrected, how hard could it be to just get a harder liver back? I figure someone else should use them while I can't anyway. My wife, on the other hand, is of a different opinion. She doesn't like the idea of her organs flying through the air on their way back to her body. I thought you may like that personal take on one of the aspects discussed on the episode. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but yours are easily my favorites. Best wishes, Josh. Oh, thanks, Josh. Well, I wonder how how does this belief square with, like, fears about how your body is interred? Like, do you have a fear of grave robbing? I guess grave robbing doesn't happen a lot these days as far as I know. Ooh, I don't know, Joe. Uh, Check out the headlines. Um, There are some stories out there. There are new versions of grave robbing that are are, uh, allegedly going on as well. Oh, yeah? But uh, um, what in like New Orleans with above ground burials and crypts and stuff? Uh, no, there was a there was a news story. Gosh, I don't remember which uh, city this was out of. But the idea, no, it was out of uh, out of, out of uh, Arizona. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, uh, perhaps out of Phoenix. I don't recall. But basically, the idea that some organ donation places were not operating like on the level. Oh no, and um, you know had like you know. Bags of organs sitting around, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, don't let that discourage you no, from donating ab- abso- more. Being an organ donor is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm just saying that there, if you want to, you may not be concerned about uh, your body being stolen these days, but you can find room, you know, to, to like my main. My main reaction to seeing that story uh, on the news was that, okay, someone's going to use this as an excuse not to uh, you know, donate their body to science or become an organ donor, which mm-hmm. I think is absolutely the, the wrong move. Certainly, you know, look into where your body's going, you know, be, be an informed donor uh, you know, to the extent to which that is possible. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, I, I think the, you know, the, the argument that you're not going to use your organs once you're dead is totally solid. Uh, let somebody else use them. And, uh, and then I, I do love the way Josh factors this into his belief system, you know, yeah. it's that he doesn't, he doesn't let belief in a physical resurrection keep him from doing something uh, that, uh, that, you know, can help people out and can improve the quality of life and save lives uh, for other individuals. Sure. All right, should we move on to emails about our episode on ketchup? We got a ton of feedback about ketchup. I don't know uh, how covered in ketchup we want to get here. but we, It's the logical place to go after um, organ donation. I guess so. Uh, should we look at this first one from Christian? Uh, this is responding to our comments about currywurst and the role of ketchup in German food. I think I uh, said that I believed currywurst was like a type of like – cut up sausage that was popular German fast food that was in some kind of curry ketchup mixture. Uh, Christian responds, Hi, I'm quite late, but my podcaster is backed up a little bit, so I write to you now about your episode on ketchup. First, great episode. Second, you weren't slandering German cuisine at all. Now that makes me wonder exactly what it was I said. <laughs> um, currywurst is a German bratwurst drowned in a secret sauce, which is mostly ketchup and curry powder, and is widely available as a, quote, traditional German fast food invented in the 50s and 60s. Historically, it served as a whole worst in Berlin and cut with scissors in my home region in the Ruhr. 
that that is a a squick I did not know that I had. That is hor- like cutting sausage with a knife. That's normal, but like the scissors that got into my brain and and did horrible things. I don't know. You got to cut a sausage with something. I don't know why the scissors feel so much worse. I don't know. I mean, well, I guess it comes back to the idea that a sausage is phallic in form. I'm and not sure it does actually, because I found I was also getting grossed out by the idea of just generally cutting meat with scissors. It, hmm. it, it gave me the creeps. I mean, we have kitchen shears, right? Yeah, those are sometimes used to take apart, say, a chicken carcass, right? I guess they they sometimes are. Uh, I use it to take apart vegetables sometimes. Uh huh. Yeah, why? Am, that's not. Are you wigged out by the possibility of using kitchen shears on, say? Um, I don't know, celery? I don't know, maybe a little bit. Uh, more so on the meat. I, I don't know. Some, something's going wrong there. Uh, anyway, Christian continues. It was a long time in the top three most served fast food in Germany until Doner Kebab pushed it out uh, down to the fourth spot. The second most sold ketchup in Germany after regular ketchup is curry ketchup with Gila, the leading brand uh, with uh, a more marked share than the American juggernaut Heinz. So eating ketchup in Germany often comes with curry powder. And while I keep a bottle of ketchup around my kitchen, I really can't stand curry in my ketchup since I started cooking meals and exploring flavor for myself. Keep up the great podcasting. I hope I can catch up with your podcast soon. With spiced greetings, Christian. Huh. Well, this is great. I Now I really want to try some German ketchup. Uh, uh, I feel like a lot of German cuisine since I, is kind of unavailable to me now because yeah. it is traditional German cuisine. Germans, a lot of meat. Please yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. But, yeah, I, it, it, I, I tried to go to a German restaurant in New Orleans – uh, very recently, and I just looked at the menu and I'm like, okay, there's like nothing I can eat here. Mm-hmm. Um, like you could get some good potato salad, or it has yeah. bacon in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't. Know or that. it usually does. I mean, maybe there. Ver- I guess there are probably variations of German potato salad that don't have meat in them. But uh-huh. my understanding is that it usually does. Um, and so, like the only two things on the menu of an otherwise great looking German restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the two things that were vegetarian were not particularly German. Uh, so what was the point of going, right? Um, I, I don't know. I'm sorry, man. But I'm, I, would, I am happy to be corrected by anyone out there who has recommendations on German restaurants in the continental United States that can appease my, um, my dietary uh, constraints. Uh, or likewise, just information about what, what, is, it, what is it like to, uh, to eat traditional German fare and be a vegetarian. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I look forward for the recipes coming in. Yeah. Uh, Robert, do you mind if I jump on with this next one uh, about chup? Because I was already practicing some of these words. Oh a yes, bit. please do. This one looks long. Uh, it's not too long, but it's yeah, it's about where I, I'm still going to get some of them wrong. I know. All right, so this was also about the ketchup episode. It's from a listener who did not want us to share her name aloud. So I'm, I, if I name her, I'm just going to call her Chup for ketchup. Uh, this message seems to be in response to us talking about how tomatoes used to be known as the apples of love or love apples mm-hmm. like uh, in, in French and how other fruits and tubers and stuff were once named with some kind of apple plus modifier construction. Uh, for example, potatoes in French or pomme de terre, apples of the earth and so forth. Uh, And so this was in response to that. Uh, uh, Our listener Chup writes, Hey, guys, you were wondering in the ketchup episode about other weird apples. So being the multilingual linguistics geek, but not a proper linguist that I am, I felt inclined to share my knowledge. First of all, apple or medieval Latin palmum didn't only mean apple, but food or crop in Mm. general. 
That's interesting. Uh, This is why various settlers called plants they found in other parts of the world some kind of apple. The origins aren't always linguistically clear since the English, French, Spanish, and Dutch all ventured all over the world and often found similar plants independently in very different places since they weren't the first people to travel and conquer all over the place and spread crops all over the place. Here are some examples. Pomegranate means seeded apple. The name is of French and medieval Latin origin. Extra fact, the apple that Adam and Eve share in biblical tradition was probably originally thought to be a pomegranate since that was a fruit well known but still considered a delicacy in the Levant region. Of course, paradise isn't limited in any way and all fruits can grow there, but this is essentially about stories and culture. Uh, I know it's uh, in the original text. It is not specified to be an apple like the fruit we call an apple is just like it's a fruit and we don't necessarily know what fruit it was supposed to be so there's mm. the debate about what fruit it was in the garden of eden i was like thinking of it as a banana just because it's it's more funny that way uh-huh. yeah i think i've heard somebody propose it was a lemon i like that oh the uh, lemons are delicious uh the, the, this listener continues in greek then latin then german english french etc translations the pomegranate became an apple and so it was depicted in eurocentric art Oranges are called Apfelsein or Applesign in German and Dutch, which means Chinese apple. Uh, peaches were originally called Persian apples. They're called Persic in Dutch, and the country is Persier, making it even clearer. Where the fruit was first discovered by Europeans, even though it originated somewhere in Central to East Asia, like oranges. Potatoes are called the Earth apple in Dutch, Aardappel, and in some German-speaking regions, Erdapfel. Uh, pineapples are a little more convoluted. They're called this because they reminded the Spanish explorers of pine cones with overall shape and scales. Wild pineapples are also about the same size as pine cones. Now, in Dutch, they say denenapple for fir cone, but that's basically the same thing. However, pineapples are called ananas. I guess that's in Dutch. Hmm. Uh, uh, Quinces? Quinces? I've never actually... Um, I I guess I I was saying quinces. I don't know if I was saying it correctly. Okay. Quinces uh, are called Sidonian apples or variants of that. They spread from West Asia through the Mesopotamian Empire to Greece where they entered European culture and Sidonia was a city on Crete. Uh, Maybe it was also a quince that Adam and Eve supposedly ate. Uh, and uh, she says, that's all I can think of, but also a few other things. Peppers are some etymologic variant of pepper in most languages, uh, as far as I know, she says. And then she also has some comments about uh, currywurst. As currywurst, is u- currywurst is usually veal or fine pork sausage, and it's a common street food sold on markets, permanent sausage stands, and carnivals, mainly in Berlin and the Ruhrgebiet. Both regions claim to be the origin. In Germany, we only have McDonald's, Burger King, and some KFC in recent years as fast food chains. Instead, there are these hole-in-the-wall kiosk-style places that sell all kinds of sausages. Curry ketchup can be bought anywhere and is very good with fries. Oh, yeah, but you probably know this. Fries originated in Belgium, and Belgians are very proud of them. Uh, Always happy about the foodie episodes. Thanks for the hard work, detailed research, and quality entertainment. Have a great week. I, I do want to come in real quick since we're talking more about, about German food. Uh-huh. Um, I do not mean to imply that I think uh, Germany is a monolith and that everyone in Germany uh, just eats, sausage just eats sausages and wears lederhosen <laughs> or whatever. Obviously, there are you know, multiple different uh, cultural cultures are represented in Germany. Mm. And not everyone is – certainly not everyone is eating traditional 
German cuisine, especially as it is uh, recognized generally in a, by American uh, audiences that are going to German restaurants. But so my question is more specifically, what would modern day me uh, seek out to eat in order to scratch the same itch that meat heavy German uh, American restaurants offered when I was a kid? Well, you know what? I would say actually perhaps my favorite thing in German cuisine is not a meat. It is completely vegetarian. It's their pickles. I, I love sauerkraut. Oh, yeah. Sauerkraut oh, well, is, okay. is wonderful. Well, that, now this is true. I do still eat sauerkraut and I, I do frequently have sauerkraut on um, like the veggie dogs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe I'm already practicing the answer, but I, but I, want, I want more answers than that. <laughs> All right. You've got your assignment, folks. Write in with vegetarian German food for Robert. I should just say, by the way, that we heard from a lot of, like, European listeners about the ketchup episode. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's a coincidence. But, like, multiple listeners from, like, Austria and Germany about ketchup. I don't know what's going on there. That's great. I want more of it. All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us from David. And uh, here he goes. Hello, guys. Another great episode. As an Australian listener, I just wanted to share some differences in the way we refer to the food items and sauces mentioned. First of all, Australians up until fairly recently did not have a product in the supermarket that was called ketchup. What you would call ketchup, we simply called tomato sauce. Ho, ho. (laughs) For an Australian, ketchup is thought of as a thicker sauce. I believe this may be because Heinz sells both a thinner tomato sauce and a thicker ketchup. It is also quite interesting that Heinz is so associated with the red sauce in the U.S. In Australia, beans means Heinz, uh, quote unquote, is a big advertising campaign. Always makes me think of that album by The Who. It's got the Heinz baked beans on it. (laughs) Um, David continues, they are the baked beans company to most of us. And this ketchup thing is only uh, probably a thing in the last five to ten years, maybe a little longer. (laughs) I would imagine that the numbers you used for worldwide sales includes our tomato sauce as ketchup. On our condiment and sauce profile, we are not big on the mustard. On any family table or at restaurants, you are more likely to see tomato sauce and barbecue sauce as the two main sauces. Strange. We have hot dogs with the Frankfurt, uh, but Australians are more likely to have a sausage sandwich that has a clear skinned sausage that is cooked on the barbecue in a single piece of white bread with or without cooked onions, and the sauces are either tomato or barbecue. Hmm. Barbecue sauce everywhere. Yeah. I gotta, it sounds like no buns. For It's bread instead of bun, right? Yeah, like the white bread with the with the grilled items. I mean, that, that's sort of a thing in uh, American Southern barbecue tradition too. Yeah. David continues, Australians call French fries chips. It is a strange thing that we have two products that are referred to as chips. <laughs> they are the fried potato and the thinly cut cold product that you call chips and the English call crisps. The way we differentiate is to say hot chips, but that is only when we think it will cause confusion. So that's interesting. They kind of took yeah. chips. It's like the chip, the American chips and the British chips, uh, and, and they just use both. Yeah, it's very economical, hot chips. David uh, finishes up here and says, anyway, just thought that I would share this because throughout the episode, I was continually having to translate in my own mind as you were using these terms. 
I don't know why. I am always very interested to hear what other people call food items and how they talk about them in, in different cultures. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a wonderful way to to share and share alike with another culture. It's like talking about, oh, hey, what does a, you know, what does a chicken say in your language? Mm-hmm. What do you call this food item uh, that you in, inevitably have over there as well? And if you don't have it, well, then that's something we can relate about as well. What do you have instead? Uh, yeah, the, the kitchen table is uh, the, the dining table in general. That's the place where uh, where peace is made between otherwise differing people, right? All right, it's time to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Okay, so we are back. Uh, next, we're moving on to responses we got to our series about the invention of air conditioning. I would say this one got probably the most feedback of any episode we've done. There was a huge amount of email about air conditioning. Uh, There is no way we'll have a chance to read it all. We can do our best to give a a, a decent sampling here. Uh, So first I wanted to start off with a message from Adam. This one was a correction about something we said in the air conditioning episode. So we were pointing out that a regular fan does not actually cool the air in a room. In fact, a fan might slightly increase the temperature of the air in the room. And instead a fan, we, we were saying, cools the body by causing air to move rapidly over your skin, which cools you by speeding up the evaporation of water from your skin. Uh, and that, of course, is true, but here's Adam giving a fuller and clearer picture on the issue. So Adam says, Hey, Robert and Joe. I've written into Stuff to Blow Your Mind a few times recently, but this is my first time writing into Invention. I'm a mechanical engineering student who did very well in my heat transfer class, and I spotted an incorrect statement in your air conditioning episode. Knowing how much you love corrections, I thought I would provide this one. Hopefully it is not too dry. Uh, While evaporative cooling is certainly a factor in fan cooling, it's only part of the effect. The rest is the result of different modes of heat transfer. To start, heat is transferred from the skin to the air through conduction. In non-moving air, the air that has just been heated forms a graduated layer around the body, which insulates you and makes you feel warmer. This air becomes buoyant and rises in accordance with the chimney effect. The warm air is thus gradually replaced with cool air and the cycle continues. This is known as natural convection. In moving air, the warm layer of air around your skin is wicked away by the flow of air around you, reducing the size and effectiveness of the insulating hot air boundary. This is known as forced convection. The heat transfer coefficient, and therefore the heat transfer rate of forced convection, is greater than that of natural convection, which in this case means that moving air will draw more heat away and cool you better, regardless of whether or not you're sweating. The reason why the temperature reading of Joe's thermometer did not change when air was blown on it before being wrapped in a wet towel is because the thermometer was already the same temperature as the air, and therefore there was no heat transfer with the air regardless of flow speed. However, for warm-blooded creatures like us, we are almost always experiencing heat transfer. Some interesting results of this concept are... Cold-blooded animals are not effectively cooled by fans unless they have recently been basking. A side note, radiation is the third form of heat transfer along with conduction and convection. There's a high theoretical temperature where moving air will actually heat you up faster than stagnant air. Uh, And, of course, you can imagine that by just stepping into a convection oven, right, is blowing air on you, but it's certainly not cooling you off. Right. Also, don't step into a convection oven. (laughs) Um, 
Adam continues, although due to the evaporative effects of sweat that Joe talked about, this temperature is well above your body temperature. So you can get a, a fan blowing on you even if the air is above 98 degrees and it will still cool you off because of the sweat evaporation. Uh, but uh, whatever this theoretical temperature is where the the blowing of a fan would actually heat you up instead of cool you down. Adam calls this the anti-fan temperature. Uh, also, Adam says, running in the same direction and speed as the wind is an incredibly strange and uncomfortable feeling. Uh, I wonder if I've done that before. As I have. I've certainly experienced this um, on a boat before mm -hmm. where, you know, you're going against the, the wind on, say, a, 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 like a hot day. And uh, if you're going against the wind, yeah, it's just heightened uh, – uh, wind, you know, and heightened uh, air moving past you, and it's very cooling and liberating. And then when you have to go back the other way, um, you you might find yourself in a more like heated environment. You're yeah. like, well, what am I doing now? I'm actually like really breaking a sweat here. Yeah. I hope that this mini heat transfer lesson was interesting. I wasn't able to continue listening until I cleared this small error up. Keep up the great, almost entirely factual podcasting. Best regards, Adam. Well, thank you, Adam. That's our thing. Almost entirely factual podcasting. <laughs> Uh, but no, uh, obviously we uh, we we uh, we want to be uh, corrected if we get anything off on the show. Yeah. Uh, so the the main gist there that there is something a fan does to help cool you apart from just helping evaporate sweat, and it's just moving more air over your skin, which helps you conduct heat into the air faster. All right. Here's another air conditioning one, and this this one's really good. I uh, I'm glad we uh, put this one on the list here. This one comes to us from Hwaria. Uh, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, they write in and say, Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm a big fan of Invention and Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I started listening to both of them when Invention started, but I've liked them so much that I've gone back and listened to a few years' worth of Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes. I decided to write in after listening to the air conditioning part one episode. I grew up in India, spending a lot of summers in Kerala, uh, which is a hot and humid state, and have been living in Austin, Texas for the last four years. Most of my family in India do not have air conditioning, although they probably could now. So the episode made me reflect on living with versus without air conditioning. You mentioned sleeping on roofs, but I don't think you mentioned the more obvious solution, sleep on the floor or use thinner mattresses. Hmm. Sleeping on the floor is a lot easier than in a bed in hot weather because the floor will be cooler. It gets better if you wet the floor and let it dry a couple of hours before sleeping or shower just before bed. Also, a cotton mattress, which you can't sink into as much, and cotton sheets, which are more breathable, are much better for the heat compared to the kind of bedding which is more common here in the U.S. I've resorted to all of these strategies, and if all else fails, sleeping in damp clothes uh, when I had a tiny dorm room in undergrad in a hot, humid place with no A.C. Although I have become somewhat spoiled after coming to the U.S., I still find that I am more comfortable with a higher temperature and a table fan pointed at my face than a low A.C. temperature for sleeping. One thing I haven't been able to understand is the extent to which sweat bothers uh, people here. For me, it's just a, it's been a normal part of life, and I actually find it harder to handle dry heat than some level of humidity. I also find that my body just feels better due to cooling from evaporation, while an unnecessarily cold AC just makes me feel a little ill. 
One last thing. Initially, when you mentioned uh, step ponds and wells, I was a little surprised because I hadn't heard of the term, and I was wondering how come I did not know about this. From the description, I realized that I did know about them, but just hadn't appreciated that uh, uh, there was anything special about them. Thank you for helping me see them in a new light. They're fairly common in temples in Kerala, but as these are usually not very welcoming of tourists, I can see why they haven't been seen as much. It's also easy to imagine how the need for space in cities may result in these being filled or taken over. It's definitely happened with lakes in Bangalore. Thanks again for awesome podcast, uh, Ashwarya. What a great message. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for sharing this. Uh, this reminds me, real quick, oh, we'll come back to this, but another listener sent in some pictures that he took, a listener named Alan, uh, just of some step wells in India. And I just wanted to emphasize again how weirdly beautiful and counterintuitive they look. They look so much like optical illusions to me. The steps zigzagging down the walls really somehow seem to defy the normal rules of perspective. And I want to understand what's going on with that. Yeah, indeed. There's some, there are, uh, these, these pictures that were sent in were pretty amazing, and there have been some wonderful uh, f- photographs uh, that have been, been made over the, the years of them. Uh, I think we discussed in the show how they are, you know, for, for a while they were kind of forgotten to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, there's been a, you know, sort of a renaissance in, in reevaluating them, reappreciating them, and sharing images of them with the world, uh, which is wonderful because, like you say, there's nothing else quite like them. Yeah. You know, they, the, the best way I can think of them is it's like an inverted ziggurat. Yeah. Uh, but also, uh, Aishwarya, I really appreciate you sharing all these sort of like hacks for temperature at night, uh, spe- like like wetting the floor so yeah. that like the evaporative heat of the water evaporating off the floor actually cools the floor right before bed. Uh, and I wonder how hard you have to manage like the timing of that and stuff because I assume you wouldn't want to like lie down while it's still wet. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, this was really interesting. Uh, also, the, fa- the fact that you've had perspective on it uh, on it both ways now. Yeah. So thanks so much. All right. Also about air conditioning, our listener Tom says, hey, guys, I was listening to the podcast and you mentioned movie theaters offering AC. You said if you were in this position, you would look for the longest movie. However, in the old days when I was a kid, even after the 30s, movies didn't charge you to watch a movie. They charged an admission. Movies always had short reels and often were double features. Either way, you routinely walked into a movie at any time, sat through the end, and then watched the beginning until you got to the place you already saw. In fact, you would frequently see people leave saying, this is where we came in. Many times we would sit and rewatch the movie. I guess just take advantage of the air conditioning, right? Is that the line from the Pink Floyd song that you and I were talking about? Uh, Wait, what are you talking about? This is where we came in? Oh, yeah. What's the deal with that? Uh, with the, oh, with the wall, the right? The wall supposedly like loops somehow. Yeah. So what a weird coincidence. We, 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 were, we were speaking about that um, uh, off uh, mic earlier, uh, totally unrelated to listener mail. It must mean something. Yeah. All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us from David. First of all, love the podcast, but I'm somewhat new to the stuff to blow your mind sphere. But I've been with invention from its inception. I love seeing the evolution of technologies and how they shaped the world we know today. I was looking forward to this episode, and he's talking about the air conditioning uh, episode, uh, because in particular because I knew you'd be mentioning my hometown of Minneapolis. I also strongly suspected that you'd be surprised to learn that we hosted the site of the first residential air conditioning installation, which indeed we did express surprise at that. Yes. Let me tell you, Minneapolis can get hot in the summer. We have roughly two to three months out of the year that I'd call legitimately hot. 
This doesn't happen too often, but it's not unheard of uh, for us to even see a couple of 110-plus Fahrenheit days per year. What? What many people forget is that we're positioned fairly centrally on the continent, with Lake Superior and Michigan uh, the only large bodies of water to regulate temperature swings that are even close. So we experience very cold days for sure, but pretty dang hot ones too. Keep up the great work, David. Uh, yeah, I'll admit that my my visions of Minneapolis were largely based on, uh, first of all, jokes uh, from from people who had lived there about the cold, mm-hmm. and having only, and having ventured there only once during the winter mm-hmm. uh, for like uh, twenty four hours, and having to like get out on you know and walking around and traveling from one point to another, and so on some level, I just imagine that Minneapolis is just always really cold, except for maybe like a month or two. Uh, in the summer where they experience something called summer, but surely not as hot as something that we would have down here. What's the uh, TV show that's set there? Is it Mary Tyler Moore or something? Uh, maybe so. Yeah, yeah, it always looks cold. It's kind of the reverse of the uh, the effect you see with television shows uh, shot in Toronto. Huh? Specifically, I'm thinking of um, Kim's Convenience, which is a wonderful uh, Canadian show. Uh-huh. And then I think Working Moms is also set there and filmed there. Okay. But I get the impression they only film the show during the summer or in the you know warmer months. And so if you were just watching those two shows, you would think, well, wow, Toronto looks amazing. It's just a it's just summer all the time. They have no no winters there, nor at least nobody on the show talks about it. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm gonna, you know, book my my trip for um for November and see what happens. Uh, but likewise, I think that the talking points for Minneapolis uh, among you know people abroad tend to be a, about the cold. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right on the money there. Uh, okay, quick message from our listener, Colin. Colin is referring again to the thing I, I talked about in the episode where uh, – you know, I, I held up a thermometer in front of a desk fan and the temperature didn't change. But then when I wrapped it in a wet towel, the temperature went way down and that was because of the evaporative cooling. Um, so Colin says, hello, I just finished part one of air conditioning and wanted to draw your attention that Joe was obliquely describing a sling psychrometer when he spoke of using a wet cloth thermometer and desk fan to prove the cooling properties of evaporation. A sling psychrometer is a rudimentary meteorological device composed of two bulb thermometers connected by a string. The bulb of one thermometer is wrapped in a wet cloth and the other is not. The thermometers are then swung around circularly for several seconds and then the temperature of each is recorded. The difference in temperature reading can then be entered into a table which will provide you with the relative humidity. The more arid the ambient air is, the greater the temperature discrepancy will be. Anyway, it's uh, it's a term from fourth grade earth sciences that has always stuck with me because it's fun to say love the show cheers colin all right on that note we're going to take one more break but we'll be right back with more listener mail all right we're back so we're going to read some more air conditioning listener mail uh this one comes to us from uh, an individual named christian I, think, I guess a different christian i'm not I think sure a different one we don't want to imply that they're like just two listeners <laughs> And they they just uh, we just 
Sometimes it happens. We just get multiple listeners of the same. Yeah, name yeah, yeah. And, and certainly we love hearing from from repeat listener mail um, offenders as well. But Christian writes in and says, "Hey guys, I enjoyed the air conditioning podcast. As an architect, there are any number of rants about poorly designed buildings I could break off into. But I thought it might be more beneficial to introduce something critical to heating, ventilation, air conditioning design." This tool is the psychrometric chart with the comfort zone for humans highlighted. Oh, yeah. So this would connect to what we were just talking about, a psychrometer uh, detecting like relative humidity levels. Yeah. The comfort zone illustrates that 75 degrees in Atlanta with 90% humidity feels hot, yet 80 degrees in Southern California with 50% humidity does not. The big takeaway, humidity control can be more important than temperature in our comfort. In the South, uh, our air conditioners remove moisture from the air while cooling it. When our buildings have dehumidification systems, which operates uh, separately from the air conditioning systems, we can be more comfortable over a wider range of temperatures, thus saving energy. Typically, houses aren't constructed that way, but probably should be, especially in the hot, muggy South. That's really interesting. I'd never uh, thought of that before, that like you could use less energy achieving a comfort zone if you take into account uh, temperature and humidity separately mm. instead of just running an AC to do both all the time. Yeah, so you could have one device stuck in one window and then another one in the other window. <laughs> then you have to have two devices, which – uh, you know, this is. I, I do think this gets to the heart of why you you don't see this utilized in um, in a home environment. All right, what else do we have, Joe? All right, this next message came in response to our episode on the invention of the hypodermic needle. Uh, This comes from Dan. Dan says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I was listening to your most recent listener mail episode and was surprised that the letters you received about the hypodermic needle lacked any input from type 1 diabetics. I myself have been managing type 1 diabetes since I was diagnosed at age 3 almost 30 years ago. Before switching to insulin pump therapy in the mid-2000s, I spent about 15 years getting between 5 and 7 injections of insulin each and every day. Additionally, every three months, uh, having blood drawn to check long-term markers of possible hyperglycemia-related damage. As you might suspect, this served as exposure therapy to the extreme for myself and any other diabetics in the pre-insulin pump era. As a child, I had absolutely no trepidation with needles, injections, or IVs. My story takes an unexpected turn, however, when I was in college and was diagnosed with cancer at age 20. I'm happy to say that I've been cancer-free and relatively healthy for 10 years now, but the traumatic experience of the diagnosis and subsequent treatment manifested in a surprising manner. During my treatment, I had to regularly undergo CT scans to monitor my disease, which involved an uh, intravenous injection of contrast dye. This seemed like no big deal at the time, as I was well accustomed to needles and blood draws, but during one of my CT scan sessions, I became extremely dizzy and nearly fainted during the insertion of the IV line. Ever since that experience, I've been very uneasy around needles and often feel lightheaded during blood draws, despite my exposure therapy consisting of tens of thousands of injections during my lifetime. I can only hypothesize that the trauma of my cancer diagnosis and treatment created an anxious association with needles, but I thought this would be an interesting story of exposure therapy early in life that was surprisingly counteracted by later events. Thanks again for putting together such consistently intelligent and insightful episodes of Invention and Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I am a cell biologist working in cancer research, and having well-researched and stimulating podcasts to listen to both helps me get through some of the mundane and repetitive tasks required in my scientific research and continually expands my perspective. Best, Dan. 
Very interesting. Thanks for uh, for sharing that with us, Dan. Yeah, totally. And uh, best of luck in your research. All right, here's one message in response to the episode we did about the turnspit dog. This comes from someone who identified themselves as Gamer Checks. Uh, we don't choose their names. I they, think that's they, their 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 God-given name. Okay, Gamer Checks. Gamer Checks says, love the show. I was listening to your episode on the turnspit dog, and you talked about the dog being domesticated 12,000 years ago and brought up how we domesticated the cat later on. This is actually not the case. Cats are the only close companion who domesticated themselves. Uh, gotta love the stubborn little chonks. Anyway, in the future, I'd love to see a themed episode on the invention of domestication itself. Thanks, Gamer Checks. Yes, this is a good point and uh, one that I think we have we have discussed on past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our other podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, there is the the argument that that the cat essentially um, brokered its own domestication. The, the cat wanders up and is like, "Hey, I see you got a you got a problem with some rats there. Looks like you got some uh, some extra food around. A creature like me could really earn its keep around here." Uh-huh. And we said, uh, "Oh, sure, let's uh, let's do that." And uh, what do you want in return? The cat's like, "I just want enough to you know to wet my beak." And then the cat <laughs> wants to uh, you know live inside your house and on you and uh, and so forth. And and uh, yeah, so and certainly anyone who has who has lived with a cat knows that the cat is there on its seems to be there on its own terms for the most part carrying out nightly missions for the neighborhood witch yes <laughs> uh, but I, I yeah i could see us doing an episode on domestication in the future i mean it is it is a human technology uh, mm-hmm. though it also is uh, it's not entirely a human technology there are examples in the natural world of creatures that have domesticated something and that would be fun to talk about as well sure yeah like uh, insect agriculture uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then also some of the stories of domestication are are just so uh, impressive. Um, r- really, I mean, we, there are specific examples that would that really should be their own episode, like silk. Yeah, uh, silk. Oh, I've thought about doing this yeah. before. Yeah. Well, heck, let's do silk in the new year. Okay. Okay, so I think uh, due to time constraints, we're going to have to call it there for the first of our year-end wrap-up episodes of uh, Invention Listener Mail. But we'll be back with more next time. That's right. We're going to close out the year with uh, another episode of Invention Listener Mail. And then we'll be back with new episodes of Invention in the new year. But really, the year's almost over. Stop learning. Really, you don't need to keep going. Just... Hey, there's a lot to learn from these messages. <laughs> there is. There is and a lot for us to learn uh, specifically. And uh, and we do love hearing from everyone. We don't have time to respond to everyone, and we don't have time to read every listener mail that we receive on the show. But uh, do know that we are reading, and so we just invite you to continue to send in your questions, tidbits from from your life, from your environment. Uh, we love to hear all of it. In the meantime, if you want more episodes of Invention, uh, it's pretty easy to find us. We're on all those podcast uh, websites, wherever you get a podcast, wherever you, wherever you even hear a whisper of podcasts, we are there. Uh, you can go to inventionpod.com and that'll redirect you to a page that has our podcast. Wherever you go, though, just make sure you subscribe, that you rate, that you review. These are the sacred rights that allow us to continue. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, uh, to perhaps get featured on a future listener mail episode, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 